Full Service Radio is supported by Compass, the future of real estate in the metro D.C. area and beyond. Discover more at compass.com. Tune in to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. Happy Monday, everybody. I'm Kiko Bourne, and this is Lunch Agenda on Full Service Radio at the Line Hotel in D.C. This is actually the first show of the second season of Full Service Radio. So we've made it, we've made it through season one, and I'm so glad that you're joining. Every Monday at noon, I spend lunch break learning about how people in D.C. and across the country are changing the food system. I believe food is worth more of our money, time, and energy than most of us devote to it in our day-to-day. Did you know Americans spend 11% of their budgets on food compared to French who spend 22%? This show aims to elevate the value of food by highlighting people and parts of the food system that don't often get covered in the news. You can see pictures of the show at KikoBuff on Instagram and links we discussed during today's interview on my site, kikosfoodnews.com. Today presents an opportunity to sink our teeth deeper into food policy, to continue understanding how we, from wherever we each sit in the food system, whether we're an eater, a shopper, a home cook, an educator, can apply pressure on government to move forward food legislation that's good for the environment, the people who produce our food, and all of us who eat it. You may remember our first food policy class episode discussed why our voices are so important important for local government to hear and how to get involved with the annual budget cycle wherever we live. Well, today we'll get a great window into another type of policy work being done not by the average resident like, like maybe you or myself, but by the people who make our most special meals, chefs. So with me in the studio, I have Catherine Miller, the Senior Director of Food Policy Advocacy for the James Beard Foundation. Catherine founded and has led their Chef Action Network, which trains chefs on how to advocate for the change they want to see. And on Catherine's side, I'm joined by Amy Brandwine, the, the chef and owner of Centralina Restaurant and Market in D.C., who will share what she's learned, what she learned from the training, and we'll talk about some of the issues she's taken up with congressional representatives since then. I hope that through our conversation, you'll gain an appreciation for how each of us, no matter where we sit or stand in a restaurant, can take small actions that build important change. But before we get talking with Catherine and Amy, Kiko's food news for today. First headline today, the House Agricultural Committee Chairman Mike Conaway last week unveiled, or two weeks ago, unveiled a first draft of the 2018 Farm Bill. This is a big milestone. The Farm Bill is reauthorized only once every five years, and it legislates pretty much every farm program and nutrition programs like SNAP, also known as food stamps. The version of the bill just released signaled that Republicans in the House 
will demand a revamp of SNAP eligibility to put more people to work, and that the administration may want may be open to permitting states to drug test people who apply for food stamps. I want to note on the side that most people who use SNAP actually do work, and they just don't make enough money to put food on the table. Um, anyways, Congress has until September 30th when the current farm bill expires to pass the new version. Headline two for today. A report titled Supermarkets Fail to Make the Grade in Reducing Food Waste was released two weeks ago. You can see how your favorite grocery store ranked on Kiko'sFoodNews.com. Letter grades were given in three categories. How much public information a store shares about food waste, what it does to prevent food waste, and where its discarded food goes. No store got an A. Uh, Walmart actually led the pack on this, on this um, you know, chart, having worked to standardize its expiration labels into two categories, best if used by and used by, which can save a lot of waste since so many people don't trust the sniff test and end up throwing out perfectly edible food. Whole Foods stood out for preventing waste before food even gets to the shelf by taking produce that they pull off the shelves and repurposing it, repurposing it into prepared foods. So if you want to check out the full grading, you can go to my website. Headline three. Speaking of supermarkets, Amazon's online grocery sales grew 50% in Q1 of this year. I just, it might sound obvious that, that there is such momentum around grocery delivery, but I just think that that is incredible growth and it's worth mentioning. Um, and I thought it would be of interest following our recent lunch agenda debate about the future of the grocery industry. Beverages were the top selling items on the site, accounting for nine of Amazon's 10 best selling grocery products. Snacks were another strong performer, but it's not yet a destination for the truly profitable full basket grocery shop. The company's main challenger for that is Walmart. Finally, for DC listeners, I want to plug an exciting and important event coming up on May 15th. The Candidates Food Forum will bring together candidates for citywide council seats to share their ideas and positions on DC food system issues. Candidates will answer questions about food justice and health equity, school food and nutrition, urban ag, economic development, and more. This, this event is happening at NPR headquarters at 6 o'clock on the 15th of May. So if you care about the food platforms of candidates you may or may not want to vote for, I'll see you there. And you can also find that link at my site. We're going to take a quick break. And when I come back, our food policy class will begin hearing about the trainer and the chef who are using their positions to advocate for change. Stand by and we'll see you soon. Music by Keto here on the break. That's K I E D O on SoundCloud. The song is called Dream Flower. We will be right back. Welcome back to Lunch Agenda. 
I'm Kiko, and this is the second edition of our on-air food policy class. So I'm glad you're listening and taking your lunch break to learn about advocacy and chew on what you can do. Today, we're going to hear about how chefs all around us are using their unique points of view to raise and push forward work on issues ranging from fisheries conservation to pay equality. I'm grateful to be joined by Catherine Miller, who's paving the way for these chefs through her trainings and arming them with the tools they need for advocacy. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back into the studio. Absolutely. I, I'm joined by two veterans today, and we'll introduce Amy in a minute. Catherine is the Senior Director of Food Policy Advocacy for the James Beard Foundation, where she leads the development of advocacy strategies around food waste, sustainable meat, seafood, and child nutrition. As the founding executive director of the James Beard Foundation's Chef, a- Chef Action Network, Catherine is a nationally recognized expert on advocacy and issue campaigns. She works to develop and activate new chef voices interested in working on these issues, especially through her work on the Chef's Boot Camp for Policy and Change. I'm also joined by one of the most impressive chefs Catherine has led through this boot camp. Amy Brandwine. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. Amy is the chef and owner of Centralina, a seasonal Italian restaurant and market that opened three years ago in Central D.C. Chef Brandwine has earned recognition as a James Beard Foundation Award finalist in the Best Chef Mid-Atlantic category. Last year, she was accepted to the James Beard Foundation's prestigious Women's Entrepreneurial Leadership Program Fellowship. And she just won Best Chef in the Best of DC 2018 edition of, uh, of, of Washington City Paper. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. Amy's also a veteran to the full service booth. Both of these amazing women have um, already come on Nikki Nellis and Dave's show, Industry Night, to talk about various issues. But today we're really digging into this opportunity that chefs have to, to become policy experts and policy change makers. Catherine. I want to just start with how you got to this point of being a leader on, in this way. How did you find your way into a policy training role? Because it's one thing to you know, work in the government. It's another thing to really have to know it to teach it. So what, how did you get here? Um, I call this my delicious accident um, <laughs> professionally. Um, I had 20 years working in, on political campaigns, on training advocates around the world, on, um, in countries like Nigeria and Mali and China on issues, huge issues, um, you know, healthcare, um, widows' rights, uh, basic wow. democracy, those types of things. And it is a skill to train people. And in 2012, the James Beard Foundation, through that work, discovered me. Um, one of their board members knew about the work that I was doing. And they had this idea um, to replicate something that had been going on in the music industry and in the arts industry hmm. through an organization called Air Traffic Control, which was created by Pearl Jam. Wow. And um, for those who might remember, Pearl Jam in the 90s took on Ticketmaster and also took on healthcare and basic rights with labels for bands. And so they had created an, this organization called Air Traffic Control, which the idea was to train musicians and arts to advocate for themselves. Um, because it's also a very different industry. And so um, teaching them to advocate for their fair share of tour rights or health care with their labels or to get um, their ownership back of their music, that sort of thing. So the Beard Foundation sort of looked at that as a model 
and said, hey, we're sort of sitting on this amazing membership, the next rock stars, right? Um, food is our most shared headline on social media. Food is, um, dominates our pop culture, um, Instagram, television, documentaries. Um, we all wait obsessively for the next season of Chef's Table, even if there are no women profiled in it. Um, uh, ding! Um, and so they, they said, hey, come do this. And I, I very openly always talk about the fact that I told them they were crazy. Um, that this was probably the stupidest thing I'd ever heard of in my life. And, you know, what do chefs know about anything related to that? And I'm always very open, open, open and honest about that because midway through the first, but they convinced me to do it. They said, absolutely, come do it. It'll be really interesting. And midway through the first boot camp, um, which we created, which we call the Chef's Boot Camp for Policy and Change, which I designed, I realized that they were much more than pretty people with sharp knives who make delicious food, that they are business owners their employers, they are secondary employers. Um, and even the smallest restaurant in a city like DC is probably generating somewhere around a million dollars in sales, not necessarily revenue, but certainly sales mm-hmm. and the circular economy in which that supports. And that is an untapped resource in the world where um, our political system can often be perceived to be controlled by large scale lobbyist organizations that are really beholden only to the large-scale chains or industry leaders. And so we stopped thinking about chefs as independent rock stars and started thinking about them as whole markets Mm. um, and how we could harness the power of these amazing business people, these people who are employers or people who are doing this stuff, and turn them into the most valuable constituents and voices that members of Congress and mayors and governors want to hear from. Because at the end of the day, politicians want to know how they can create jobs, how they can build economies, how they can make their communities more secure. And chefs are doing that every day through the, the, the basic work that um, comes so naturally to them. Right. So, And not to mention, you know, you mentioned business owners and employers. They're also the biggest food shoppers. Yep. You know, the, the, their ability to vote with their dollars collectively is just massive. Massive. I mean, we the <laughs> restaurant industry is sitting on about a, nearly a trillion dollars worth of um, circular sales system, um, circular sales within it, and about one in every two dollars that's spent on food in this country is actually spent in a restaurant, mm. either by the chef purchasing or by the consumer themselves. Right. So if you think about that, that's no longer just one restaurant over here with their 14 employers. I mean, I look at D.C. and the preponderance of independent small business owners, even those who may have one or two um, outposts, right, our localized um, restaurant groups. And the, the power here to make change possible is is really incredible. And it's evidenced by the fact that the mayor's um, campaign, you know, the, the, the mayoral race right now is going to have a whole forum dedicated to food. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good sign. Yeah. Um, speaking of D.C., Sam Cass was in town last week, and he was touring for his new book. And many of us followed his rise to stardom as President Obama, you know, the Obama family's White House chef. His impact stemmed from the fact that he had this intimate connection to the Obamas. They trusted what he put on his plates, enough to bring him from Chicago with them to the White House. What do you consider to be the legacy of his time in the White House on American food and did that inform the work you do? Did seeing what happened in that presidency inform your work? And, or what chefs, if, if not, you know, Sam Cass specifically, what chefs do you think have made the biggest impact thus far in policy? 
Yeah, well, I think it's uh, it's a lot that we had an administration for eight years that food was a focal point of their agenda. And that was largely built off the relationship that Sam had with the Obamas. And so that legacy will always be there. We woke up related to food and we can never go back to sleep around it. Mm-hmm. It might well said. ebb and flow related to the priorities for any new administration or Congress, but there's, you know, nobody will forget that picture of nearly a thousand chefs on the South Lawn, right? No one will forget that the White House at one point had a food advisor. And so as we look towards building political power and those things, chefs are now commonplace on Capitol Hill in a way that they never were before um, and never, and hopefully will return to that. I mean, we were just, I, we brought Claire Reichenbach, our new CEO of the James Beard Foundation to Washington just about a week ago. Oh God, it was only a week ago. Um, and we, she sat down and met with Senator Debbie Stabenow about the farm bill, right? The, the idea that that would have happened three years ago, good work, you know, just sort of blew my mind. And we're sitting there and having this long conversation. And Senator Stabenow's acknowledge, Senator Stabenow acknowledged that she had seen many chefs from Michigan in her office, but she also acknowledged something that we all know, which is that chefs, women, and farmers are three of the most respected voices that you can have on food policy. And she asked specifically to see more of all three of those in her office related to the farm bill negotiations. So, Did you hear that, listeners? So if you are a chef, a woman, or a farmer, get thee to um, your local government <laughs> you know, headquarters and, and go into one of your elected officials' offices. They want to hear from, from you. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned the food advisor position that Deb Ashmeyer held under the Obama administration. What happened to that position? Why? What do you know with all of your you know, insider conversations about Will there be a food advisor going forward? I, I don't anticipate one within this Trump administration. I mean, mm-hmm. this obviously the White House makes their own priorities with each administration. And mm-hmm. so it was a new position. It was not something that the Clintons or the Bushes held within their administration. It was new and unique to Obama. Um, you know, the White House garden is still there. Um, food is still a hot topic because of the farm bill. Um, this administration may not see it as a priority in terms of either national security or um, economic development, but that's our job to make sure that they don't lose sight of it. Um, right, right. And my hope is that we continue to build so much momentum that with the next administration, even if it's the next term of this president or new terms of a new president, that it does start to um, reemerge as that priority. Right. So we're, we're hearing from Catherine Miller, who leaves, leads the chef's boot camp. And before we speak with one of those chefs, Chef Amy Brandwine, who has you know, gone forth and, and led after that boot camp. Can you tell us what goes down over the course of those three days? You know, which chefs do you enroll? You know, you've trained at least 180 so far, I, I understand. What happens there? How do you find the chefs and, you know, what goes on in those three days? Yeah, so it's a three-day intimate um, advocacy retreat. It's uh, 15 chefs at a time. They have to apply and or are selected through other means. We have about 900 chefs currently on the waiting list for the program. So we'll get we'll get there. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the thing that's been most exciting to us is that chefs have actually stepped into this role. It's something that they want to do, that we don't just have to go out and like dig for them and find them, that they're actually coming to us and saying, hey, we want to get more involved. Help me make 
better decisions, use my voice more powerfully um, related to the program. So we have 900. It's a three-day retreat. It's a lot of what most advocacy trainers or political trainers would recognize in terms of use your voice. Um, a lot of regrounding the chefs themselves in their own power because many chefs don't don't necessarily think of themselves as those community leaders or that their voice matters in that way. Um, and then there's some, you know, farm activities and they cook a communal dinner for themselves. Everybody always asks me, what's the best meal you've had? And I've said the 15 dinners that I've had at boot camp mm-hmm. where the chefs themselves come together and cook mm-hmm. for each other because there's nothing more um, heartwarming than that. Um, and then there's an intention session. So at the end of every boot camp on the very last day, they all sort of have to kind of immediately process what they've learned, what they're thinking about, the issues that they've been introduced to, and make some at least um, commitments to the actions that they'll take forward. Um, and then it's our job to kind of hold them accountable to that and make sure that they deliver on that and that we support them in the way that we can. Uh-huh. So I want to play a quick clip from a recent conversation I had with Pam Hess, who's the executive director of Arcadia Sustainable Food, um, about the personality of chefs. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, she, you know, she loves chefs, but this is what she says about their personality. It's kind of fun. Farmers and chefs are very unique personalities uh, as a group. They are both uh, control freaks, bosses, um, uh, type A personalities, often very introverted, and they both, in, 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 in ways that are really defensible, think that they're the most important link in the chain. So what do you think about the personalities of the chefs you've trained and do you do you have to convince them that their voice matters or are they do they come in empowered maybe with past experience even Uh, No, I mean, we definitely spend a fair bit of time grounding them in why they're powerful. Um, There's definitely, you know, you you have to have a certain level of arrogance to spend every day with a sharp knife and (laughs) next to a hot stove and fry oil, right, and leading kitchen. So you have to have a certain level of arrogance. But you may not recognize that you are, according to national surveys, one of the most trusted spokespeople related to food. Mm -hmm. You may not appreciate your full power within the marketplace um, because you know how much you make. But a lot of chefs were like, well, my margins are 6%. I'm not rich. I don't have those resources. But when you start to stack it as a community, it really works in that way. Um, Our favorite thing at Beard is the reason we love this audience is because chefs get done. Mm -hmm. Um, They they come in. They get shit done. They come (laughs) in every day and are faced with crisis management. Every day an order didn't come, a staff member didn't come, and they figure out how to make it work. And we've seen that same brain power and that same puzzle solving within the policy perspective. They are really frustrated by the pace of policy change. And so we have to kind of keep that uh, you know, keep them moving, keep them motivated, keep reminding them of how this is a process and it takes it takes time. But there's no um, lack of drive or excitement or curiosity about this work. And so we just we say it all the time. These are the, the right people to do it because they just get shit done every day. So let's let's hear the perspective from one of those chefs. Amy, I'm curious, did you relate to that comment by Pam or um Maybe, maybe, I mean, as, as we're talking about chefs, here are Catherine and I talking, talking, and we're kind of generalizing about a whole group of people. What have you noticed? What did you notice about your cohort going that you went through the training with? Um, well, I mean, I think that, I think uh, Pam is 
first of all, I love Pam. She <laughs> got me involved in one of my most important projects. Um, Which project? Besides Catherine. That? Um, well, I, I'm a really, uh, I'm a, I guess I'm a partner, not a, fi- well, I guess I'm a, I am a financial partner. DC Urban Greens, so it's a, it's yeah. a farm in, uh, in Ward 7, and Pam got me involved in that. Um, but I think that chefs are arrogant, yeah. <laughs> I think they're introverted, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're pushed to become extroverted because they produce something that attracts a lot of attention. Mm. And so I don't think some chefs, like, they want they want it. They want every ounce of that attention. Some chefs are just creating something because it, they're, it's what they want to do. And so there is that's their outlet. But at the same time, like, there's an, an immense... Com- sometimes... Um, being able to handle all this this traffic, it, it it is a little bit challenging. Where do you fall in that spectrum? Why are you Why are you a chef? Um, I think I'm right in the middle. Like uh-huh. I, um, I fell into cooking because I loved it, and then I, I spent. I mean, I've been doing this almost 20 years. So, um, started off as learning a craft, and then became understanding of the business. Then, you know, the food world just blew up right as I was coming up through the ranks and uh you know now I see I see things uh a little bit differently I'm an owner and uh in terms of like what we can do and responsibilities that we have you realize that at a certain point you do have a responsibility so right um so it's a lot of fun (laughs) it's a lot of fun there's a lot of rock star being a chef and then there's a lot of really hard work and then there's a lot of responsibility. And so I think that's where um, Catherine does such a great job in sort of like melding all these different things together. Mm-hmm. And what if, do you remember kind of what nugget you took from the training that was most powerful for you to bring forward? Um, you know, I, I went to the boot camp. I wasn't sure exactly what was going to happen. I was kind of terrified, to be honest. Um, you know, I am a really actually introverted person, and, and getting into a room with 10 other chefs, not knowing their personalities, not knowing what was going to come out of this, I was like, what is going to happen here? Except that I knew that the cause was good, so I was like, I'm definitely doing this. Um, and uh, it was an amazing experience. Um, what I got out of it was not like the specific, we spent our, our time talking about food waste, which is a huge deal. Um, but what I got out of it was just like a larger thinking about what you're doing even more than I was already doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Getting even more heady about, about your time in the restaurant. Um, and since then, which issue have you led on, you know, which, which issues do you care most about? And, how have you raised your voice since then? What are some of the, the um, what's some of the advocacy work you've been doing since then? Um, I think the biggest thing I've been involved in is um, urban farming. Um, I got involved in this farm, DC Urban Greens, because, um, you know, it was kind of I. Pamela reached out to me and said, "Are you interested in working with this group?" And I said, "Well, yeah." And then so we met them on the side of the road, which the side of the road around D.C. is Pennsylvania Avenue. So there we were, you know, and they had their little mobile farm and, and we met and and they were showing me their their produce. And I just thought, like, this is the right thing to do. It, it combines all the things that I care about. Um, and it was like something I could just really like latch on to every aspect of what they're doing. I was like 100 percent, 150 percent devoted to it. And so what are you able to help them with that I couldn't help them with as a as a 
civilian eater. Um, you know, how do you use your position as a chef to push their work forward? Um, well, first of all, I buy produce from them. So they have um, they have two farms, and then one of them serves um, their immediate community, meaning um, Fort DuPont, which is where they're located. Right. Um, so I buy um, weekly from them what they grow. I buy whatever they have, I buy it. So they say, are you interested in these turnip greens? And they, and I'm like, yes. And then I'm like, are you interested in the beet green? I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Just whatever you have, just bring it over and I will cook it up, you know, and it's beautiful product. Um, so I work as a chef to, um, first of all, help stabilize their economy, meaning like it helps them grow their product and, and kind of stabilize their, their, uh, growing efforts. So that's the first thing. And then, um, then I just realized, like, I do have an ability with um, people reaching out to me constantly, talking about things, um, that I do have a, an ability to speak on their behalf. Right. So right. that I do on a regular basis. Because you might have a bigger platform than any, you know, their leader might. Which I don't think is correct, but it is what it is. So I, I recognize that and I try to help. That's awesome. So Catherine told me that you cooked for Senator um, Warren of Virginia at one point, and that led to collaboration with him. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, it's it's the very few that get to meet a congressperson in an intimate way, like serving them food. And how did you take that opportunity forward? Yeah, I mean, he's been to the restaurant several times, um, and then um, I had another dinner that I cooked that he was at. It was a political dinner. Um, and then I went to, uh, I went to one of his, his turkey, he has a turkey fundraiser for Share Our Strength. Nice. It's pretty fun, you know. Um, <laughs> Is that open to the public or? I, I think, I don't know. I okay. have no idea, but I was sending him, actually he invited me to come, so I went. And uh, I, interestingly enough, we have something in common, which I didn't realize at the time, which was that he has um, legislation on um, food deserts and providing economic incentives for people who are going into or companies that want to establish in food deserts or farmers, um, small small people producing um, food in those areas, and so he has this bill that he's co-sponsored with um, some other some other uh, senators, um, bipartisan. And so I had no idea that he had this going on. He invited me to do this, um, come to his fundraiser. I went. We discussed DC Urban Greens, and so now I. Um, I'm going to be working with them in the future. Um, we don't have anything immediately planned right now, but we're, we're working on doing a, a dinner together um, that will um, highlight DC Urban Greens and, and the issue of food deserts. Um, and I'm really, I, I met with their, uh, their uh, staff person that is in charge of um, the agriculture stuff. And, uh, you know, they were been very helpful. So that, um, was just a confluence of different things, and right. and he is also my senator because I'm you know a Virginia resident, so um, that that's really exciting. Sounds like you're a key advisor of his now. You know that he's pulling <laughs> no. you into these various. No, <laughs> it sounds like when he's doing things around food, he wants your perspective. Um, you know who knows? I, I don't know. I hope so. Yeah. I I think we're we're just starting out a. Uh, you know, a relationship in terms of uh, connecting people. And I think one of the things that's really fascinating about this that uh, I was talking to Catherine about at some point was that um, a lot of these things are connecting people and connecting dots. And even, you know, um, you know, if I didn't have people connecting us, I would have not known that he had this legislation out right. there that was immediately 
going to impact something that I care about. So I think a lot of this is just getting information out and connecting people. There's a lot of people working on all these issues, but um, it's a constellation of people bringing together and kind of that's the thing that I think is, is really super helpful. Yeah, and I've heard Catherine say in the past, politicians are people and we forget <laughs> that uh it, you know i think he's come into centralina as a diner as a person and you've been able to build from there so <clears throat> Catherine, i want to ask you who you guide chefs to target their advocacy at you know this is a this is a success story of relationship building between a chef and a congressperson but you know who are who are the targets that you recommend I think it's the person in your home city or your home state, right? What makes Amy so relevant to Senator Warner is she is a constituent, right? And she is then able to humanize the story that he's trying to change, right? So he, she's already working with an urban farm. She has this example. She can showcase that. He's, const- he's writing something. His staff is writing something from a policy wonk perspective, right? And this is going to change. But they don't know how to humanize that story. And so as Amy said, pulling that constellation of people together mm-hmm. and forming those networks, it really is the most valuable when you are the taxpayer or the constituent in that community um, and when you can bring through the voices of others in that community, right? So as a chef, the, the stories of their purveyors, the farmers, their staffs, their wait staffs, their front of the house, their back of the house, all those start to humanize it. And I think, you know, as Amy experienced with Senator Warner or, you know, and we're lucky here in D.C., right? Um, All of these members of Congress, all of their staffers are eating out in the restaurants here all the time. And so the chef's ability to tell stories um, whether it's through their menu or through something that they um, participate in or um, or their publicity that they're doing. We see it all the time. We see, you know, Scott Drudo talking about sustainable seafood, you know, um, through Chico and telling that story about farmed aquaculture. We, um, you know, see Cahal Armstrong talking about immigrant rights. We see all these people sort of talking about these things and perfectly situated here. But for the most part, we train, we reinforce during the training that, what makes them so valuable is their voices, business owners and community leaders in specific places. Mm-hmm. And so then the onus is on us to find folks that are in hugely relevant areas related to the farm bill currently or related to Magnus and Stevenson on fisheries or other policies. Okay. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is something I talked about in our other food policy class episode that we overestimate how aware our representatives are of what's happening in our communities around food. And I learned this firsthand when I tried my hand at testifying um, at city council recently. And I read this whole testimony about the good food purchasing program and how, you know, the, the impact that buying at that institutional level can have on the local food system. And the council member replied back about urban gardening another issue I care a lot about, but completely different. And it made me just feel like sometimes, you know, elected officials can have one part of their brain that they think is their food part and, and, you know, just aren't immersed in these issues. Um, so I, I just think that that's the role that we can all play. You no, know, it's the role we can absolutely play. And especially if we can tell it in short human stories or in situations where it starts to imprint more. Um, you think about it. I mean, 
this is a city, so you have to deal with, you know, roads and lights and power and water yeah. in addition to food and wage and real estate and all of that. So the idea that we expect our members of Congress or our city councilmen to be 100% up on something that I spend my whole life doing. Yeah, yeah. Is, I hear you. You know, it's not necessarily fair to them, too. Right. right? So Right. I hear you. And... This is risky, right? I mean, you're asking business owners to take political stances. And, you know, 10 years ago, I feel that a lot of businesses, even those that were most progressive, weren't willing to come out on GMO as an issue. Um, that You know, they're worried about alienating any segment of their customer base. How do you talk about that? And, and I'd be curious to hear you each, you know, as the business owner, Amy, and as the trainer, describe um, your feelings there. Oh, Amy. Um, well, I mean, it's something that I was sort of grappling with in the beginning. Um, and then when, quite frankly, when the administration changed, I became much more concerned about it as people were getting, you know, kind of attacked for whatever their positions are and things. So that made me very nervous. But, um, you know, I, I think um, as long as you're principled about what you're saying, and I don't take a stand on anything until I fully understand the issue and until I have thought about it over and over and over again. So um, I spend a good deal of time um, thinking about things and, and, and kind of digesting what's out there before I sign on to something so, or before I advocate for something. So I have to feel 100%, 125% sure about what it is I'm saying before I do it. Um, mm-hmm. But um, I think as long as you're respectful and principled about what you're saying – Um, I think there's, there's, you know, as an owner, you should be able to speak your mind. Um, and I think that, uh, I, like I said before in another, another interview, I don't think, um, that because I'm the owner of a, of a popular restaurant that I should silence myself. You know, I spend a million dollars on food every year. So, um, you know, I have a right to say what I'm saying. And so as long as you're not, um, spreading um, falsehoods or, or attacking people that are opposite of your political position or something, I think there is there should be respectful um, dialogue, and I think we should be able to all learn from each other. And so that's where I really that's where I come at it um, that it's a dialogue, um, and eventually we should be able to get to some higher plane together you know speaking of dialogue have you ever (laughs) seen the negative side of of your voice being used you know have you had any bad customer experience because of this Mm, no i haven't ever had anybody um not come to the restaurant because i'm advocating for women's rights or that kind of thing well you might not know if the people (laughs) who don't come you know don't come I think there's a healthy population of people out there that want to support what I'm talking about. And I think, you know, um, those are my customers. And, and, uh, you know, I think one thing that is important is, like, you must support uh, businesses who are aligned with your... Um, your values and I think there's so many people out there who are aligned with mine that at a certain point I've decided that I must just go forward right I'm seeing Catherine nod as the proud teacher like yes yes I mean we definitely our philosophy is all around chefs are able to start conversations right there's no better place to start something than around a table over a meal 
Um, but we've seen the, the backlash. We have a chef that's gone through our training who is in Florida, who is a um, India, Southeast Asian Indian. And in response to the, you know, the shithole country's comment, decided to have a dinner. And he has a really small restaurant and his Yelp page and everything was blown up by people saying, like, get back in the kitchen, like, blah, blah, blah. And so what he did was he doubled down on having a conversation with his community. He himself changed the title of his dinner because the originally dinner though was the shithole country dinner. And mm. so he decided, wait, that's not productive because I'm already putting this negativity back out. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, community conversation dinner. He seats on, I think, a normal time. I think it's like 35, 40 covers, like 35, 40 seats. It's yeah. a, um, he rented, he got a permit for the entire front of his restaurant. 300 people later, the entire community of this small town in Florida is out eating the cuisines of the banned countries, having conversations, and clearly there because either they're curious or they're supportive of this, right? And the opportunity that gave him, he was on all the local news, he was everywhere. And so it didn't change his business approach, but he, one, responded to the calls, which were very, a lot in the beginning, were really negative and very critiquing, very critical of his own positioning of the event, like his own, like, sort of bombastic, like, I'm coming back at you, you can't ban me, you know, blah, 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 and settled down and started to have that conversation. And so we believe very strongly that what we teach the chefs, what we encourage in the chefs is we're not going to convince anybody by lecturing them. We're not going to convince anybody if all we're doing is wagging fingers and telling them they're stupid or that they don't care or that they don't know or they're ignorant. The only way we're going to change anything is by conversation, compromise, and collaboration. And so how we get there for us is with chefs at the forefront of that. And what was the name of that bold chef in Florida just so he can have his moment? <laughs> absolutely, in absolutely. Hari Pulapaka and uh-huh. his co-owner and wife, Jennifer Pulapaka of Crest Restaurant in Deland, Florida. Great to They're know. amazing. I, great to know for future Florida visits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have very little time left. I just want to... Um, ask you, Catherine, um, for which policies that are on the table right now you think chefs have the biggest opportunity to affect by sharing their voices? You know, is it the Trump's har- Trump harvest box possibility? Is it the farm bill that we were just talking about? Um, what do you think are the low-hanging fruit, if you will? Yeah, I think everything's going to be hard. Um, I don't think there's any easy ones with this within this administration, within this Congress. But, you know, the farm bill is priority number one. As you mentioned in your open, you know, September 30th is the deadline. Um, Congress is back at home for the next two weeks. They're in congressional recess right now. So mm. now is a really good time to mm. um, figure out how you feel about the farm bill and let them know how you feel. Um, the House bill, which um, contains some pretty draconian workforce enforcement, some potential round cuts, some um, changes to different programs also that we care about um, related to farm conservation, some stuff that farmers have been really excited about, the conservation efforts, soil reclamation, all the stuff that makes the food, the sourcing of the food even better. Um, so that bill um, is likely to come up in the House on um, the week of May 15th, or yeah, that's a Wednesday, I think. Um and then we'll see the Senate bill. I think that the Senate bill will be very different. So we'll probably be in a heightened political world in August um, related to it. 
and Congress very much wants um, the farm bill passed before the midterm elections. Mm. Um, it is a it is a dollar driver to congressional districts and to states around the country, and so they want it done. Um, the question is whether they can get it done. So there, for us right now, there's no bigger priority than that bill. Um, and seeing changes to the House version and seeing a better Senate version. And where can, if there's a chef listening, where can they go to find, you know, the information you want them to know about talking to their local representative about those issues you just mentioned? Yeah, so there's a great organization, um, Better Farm Bill um, is their URL. Uh, it's .org, um, which is a coalition of about 50 groups, including the Union of Concerned Scientists and Food Policy Action, um, that has all a lot of great information about the bill. Union for Concerned Scientists has a lot of information about the bill. Food Policy Action, um, which was um, founded by Chef Tom Policchio, um, has a lot of information about the bill. So there's no shortage of um, resources from from a non interest group aligned effort, I would really encourage people to um, follow the news on Politico or Civil Eats. It's just two news organizations that are covering this um, pretty extensively. Right. So those are places to go. If you're not quite sure, like, well, I don't want to take that group's point of view or that group's thing, there's um, the Politico and Civil Eats are both um, doing a lot of work on the farm bill, a lot of coverage of it. Awesome. Thank you. So the last moment we have, I'm going to use to um, give you each the opportunity to um, help our listeners with one thing they can each do, one action that listeners can take, whether they're a chef or most likely not, to change our food system for the better. Who wants to go first? Catherine, you go first. Oh, well, I have two quick ones. Okay. Um, support a woman-owned restaurant <laughs> and um, use your voice on the farm bill. Vote food. Great. Short and sweet. Amy, you get to close us out. I think it's learn more. Learn more about what is actually going on in your community. That's a great one. Mic drop. Vote food. Learn Learn more. more. Yep. Thank you. Thank you both for coming to the studio today and um, giving us a window into what it's like to be a chef with this huge opportunity and, and the numbers that you've been able to share, Catherine, about the buying power collectively, um, those numbers alone really um, are proof of your concept. So listeners can follow Catherine at Table81 on Twitter and Instagram. What's the 81 for? It is the, it's actually the back tabard table. It's the patio table at oh, the Tabard Inn. That's the, wow. that's the table number. <laughs> very DC. It's very DC. It's where I signed my first mortgage for my Aww. first house. <laughs> Um, And Amy can be followed at Centralina DC on Twitter and Instagram. Next week, we'll begin a new Lunch Agenda series. It's called Food Admin. We all love chefs, but it's time to explore the many careers in food that you may not be as familiar with. What about Food HR or Food PR? This will be a fun one, and I hope you'll tune in. So have a great week until then, and thanks for joining us on Lunch Agenda. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. 
follow us on Twitter at Full Service RDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening. Thank you.